Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 78 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and joining me today is one of Australia's most successful ever sporting coaches. In fact, he's one of the world's most successful sporting coaches. My guest today is John Buchanan. He was the Australian men's cricket coach from 1999 to 2007. And during that time, the team experienced unprecedented success. They won the ICC Trophy, two World Cups, and set a world record of 16 straight test victories. His overall win percentage of nearly 77% puts him over and above the likes of Phil Jackson and Vince Lombardi. Despite this record, John is not universally loved by the cricket fraternity, so I'm really keen to dig into this conversation and explore what it takes to lead a team consisting of the likes of Shane Warne, Glenn McGrath, Adam Gilchrist, Ricky Ponting, and how to balance the old way of doing things with what he brought in as being the new way. And as the most recent test series in India wraps up, John is still the last Australian coach to win a test series in India. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, Dan, look, pleasure. Lovely to be here. I, um, I mentioned just before we clicked record, you know, I'm a, a, a cricket tragic, and uh, I guess tragic's the operative word being an Englishman for the most part of my uh, adolescence following the game. It wasn't a fun time. Um, but, you know, certainly the past few years, the past decade or so, it, things, things have uh, looked up a little bit. But I, I, I really do, um, you know, Thank you, and, and, and really, I'm looking forward to this this conversation. Yeah, well, thanks, Dan. Uh, but as you say, things are looking up. You know, you've got a New Zealander at the helm over there at the moment. And, uh, uh, Two of them, if you count Stokesy. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. That's right. Um, and, uh, yeah, obviously, he is captain and a few other players in the mix that are really embracing um, the way that they, uh, they want to go playing the game, and they've been very successful, so... Success breeds success, as they say. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how long that goes. And again, like any any teams around the world, which we experience, obviously, was when you begin to either set a new trend or um, do things a little bit differently, then everybody's keen to find a way to beat you. Mm. And, uh, of course, that'll be the case now uh, as England is setting a, a new benchmark, in ter- at least in batting-wise. Yeah. Unfolds over over the next year or two. Mm. I, I wanted to kick off with um with a, with a bit of a sporting cliche, you know, and a champion team will always beat a team of champions, and yet it strikes me that when I look at the team, um, you know, through that mid two thousands where where it was just champion after champion coming to the crease, or or or, or with ball in hand, it strikes me a lot of your work would have been creating a champion team from those team of champions and I'm just curious to how, how does that phrase sit with you as a as a truism and how much did that whether it formed explicitly you're thinking but how much of that was at the forefront of your mind like managing those characters managing the the talent the egos whatever it might be how much of that was your role yes look there's probably a third line to what you just said and and that is a champion team made of champions mm. will be almost unbeatable. Yeah, right. Um, and, and so really that <clears throat> that was my role. I mean, my background, obviously, I, I love playing the game. and um, You know, I played it to a, a certain level, a little bit of first class and, and played in England a bit. Um, you know, I, I, I was a, a reasonable player. Probably one of the things when I went back and tried to work out my own coaching philosophy, I guess part of the reflection was around that period when I was in the Queensland team for a season and had, you know, from my backyard always aspired to wear the baggy green. You know, that was my goal. It was a goal that I think a lot of young boys hopefully and girls these days, hopefully it still is, that they, they get to muck around the backyard or the, the schoolyard or with friends and, and have those dreams, you know. So, um you know, I pursued that, but but found um, and then my time around first class cricket was around the end of the Packer era, 
And so uh, I'd play the season for Queensland and then the, the Packer players came back into the Queensland squad and that was the likes of Greg Chappell and Jeff Thompson and Martin Kent uh, and a couple of others, you know. So at that point, you know, I, I've, I really felt intimidated mm. by their presence. In other words, I didn't believe or understand the abilities I had. And I'm not saying that whether I would have gone on to greater things, but I, I certainly just didn't believe in myself. So when I, when I came to coaching, that was one of my key reflections, I guess, and that, and that was that, that everybody in the mix of a squad has different beliefs about themselves. Some are very confident. Some have false confidence. Some have arrogance. To the other extreme, or the other end of the, the spectrum, like myself, that they've got abilities, but but really uh, just don't believe in themselves, you know. So so therefore, when I came into Queensland and then and then beyond that into the Australian team, it was really trying to understand how each person ticked, you know, what 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 really enabled them to get out on their stage and perform at their best. And as I said, some that's where they want to be, you know, the Warns and the McGraths and the, the Haydens and the Ponnings and so on, uh, really had a good understanding of what they needed to do to get themselves onto the stage and then once they're on the stage, what they, they set about doing. Others were, even at that level, were, were less skilled at that. And even the, even the great players had doubts at various times. You know, whether I could play a role in that or not, you know, I was always open there for, for trying to help. So that was the team part, I think. The team part was always trying to help every individual, both on field and off field, uh, be the best that they possibly could be so that, you know, when they came to competition, then they believed that they were ready to go. You know, it's over to them and... and see how they go and then once you get through that sort of competition then again it's a bit of a review process and either individually or collectively and, and decide what we've done well what individuals have done well how we can improve that for, for the next encounter when when you sp- speak about that that doubt you know and in in your book um if, if better is possible you spoke a lot about um I, I, don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth so feel free to clarify what i say put here but you know the that element of how do I get credibility in this environment, given, as you say, you, you didn't necessarily have the, the playing career. It strikes me yeah. in, in, it strikes me that in cricket particularly, there are certain dynamics at play which I don't see as prevalent in the other sporting environments in which I work. It's, where it's kind of like, well, if you've not made a load of runs, or you've not taken a load of wickets, what could you possibly have to teach me or, or coach me? You know, what role could you play versus in, you know, I spend a lot of time in rugby league. I spend a lot of time in, in um, Olympic type in uh, sports as well. It, there doesn't appear to be quite that same, I don't know if I want to call it an alpha mentality or th- I'm just curious how that played out for you walking yeah. into that environment um, where whether there was doubt or whether there was, how did you go about um, establishing yourself in, in that environment. Yes. Well, I think the first thing we need to understand is that there is a significant difference between short-duration sports and long-duration sports. So you mentioned rugby league or Olympic sports. Well, essentially, that game is over in, you know, 80 minutes or, you know, if it's an individual Olympic event, you know, maybe it's a much shorter period of time, but, but also maybe there are a couple of rounds to get to. On a final, but nonetheless, they're still very short. And what happens in those short duration sports in the main is the coach has a far more prominent and elevated role in terms of how the competition unfolds. So go to rugby league, which is easier to probably see, is that the coach is sitting back in the box watching the game, they've got their game plans, and in the main, they're the person who is making the calls about you know, we need to make an interchange now or we can take that person off or I'll get a message down on the people on the bench so that they can get that message out onto the field because I can see this is what's going on. We need to make some changes here. So the coach in the short duration sports 
has, has a far greater um, impact role on the game and a far more visible impact role on the game. Whereas in cricket, and, and of course historically, coaching is, is still a fairly uh, new role in cricket. I mean, Bobby Simpson, who came into the Australian cricket team in the mid-80s as kind of a manager that took a second 11 team away to New Zealand uh, and then was said, right, will you come and, and, and manage the team and assist Alan Border, who we're going to now appoint as captain simply because most of the team, we can't guarantee their spot and he's the only bloke that, that's going to hold his spot. So he's our nominated captain, but he hasn't got a lot of experience and doesn't like doing the role. So Bobby, you come in and assist him. And so... That really, in a cricket sense, albeit if, if we went back to England uh, in the various county scenes, you would have had a lot of former players who occupied, in inverted commas, a coaching role. But, again, my experience of those players, because I you know, came through that sort of era with some former players who used to be around the, the Queensland squad and so on, they were, they were very good, but they weren't coaches. They, they had some playing experience, which they could talk about. But in terms of this notion of team culture, um, all the elements that go into, you know, the technical skills, the physical, mental, tactical skills of an individual and a team, it wasn't their go. They were, they were there to run a training session. and Probably a little bit like Warney used to talk about the coach, you know, it gets you from A to B and that's about it. You know? So, so there, there is very much... Uh, that sort of um, hangover, if you like, of, of what a, a cricket coach is or should be. Um, so for me, when I came to Queensland in 94, uh, Jeff Thompson was, was the coach, you know, and uh, he'd been there for four years. Martin Kent was his assistant. So incredible pedigrees, cricketing pedigrees, which I obviously couldn't stack up against and, and didn't want to try but I came to the interview to say, well, I understand coaching and I understand how I coach. And if you want to give me an opportunity to coach this team, which, you know, I've been part of 16 years previously, albeit not very illustriously, um, but if you want to give me uh, charge of this team, then this is what I think it's all about. And, and I sort of painted them a vision about... You know, we were going to dominate domestic cricket for the next 10 years. To do that, we needed to go into all our systems and processes and change that. And one of those was obviously bringing computer um, technology into the sport, which never occurred. And in most sports, it hadn't. it's hard to believe now when you look at the data and technology and the number of people that surround a team, you know, that really didn't, that wasn't, the case back in the mid-90s, and that's only, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, it's just incredible, the advancement. Um, but that's what I, I believed I could bring. I, I, I was never going to bring the cricket pedigree, or be it that I understood the game, but I believed very strongly that the cricket pedigree was in the room. So the job of the coach was to facilitate and harness all that experience, knowledge and intuition, and not replace it with things like technology or data, but just to enhance it. Mm. And, and again, my role then was to enhance the players' playing ability, not through showing them grip, not through showing them uh, how to bowl an in-swing, and not through necessarily showing them how to catch a ball. Um, we would do lots of drills that would challenge them on that front, but no, it was more about, well, I've got a certain level of ability the coach and the environment and everybody around me is telling me, wow, I can improve that. Um, but then so can everybody else and so can we as a team. So how do we go about doing that? And so that was always, I, I saw the critical role, one, to harness the talent, but also two, to really continue to challenge it to be better than what it was. Mm. So hence the book, if better as possible. Yeah. And, and one of the things that came through really strongly when you were writing about that time was, Getting, getting everyone involved to buy into the idea of, I guess, that long-term approach and not falling prey to the short-term mindset, you know, not, not falling prey. And, and I'm really interested in this because, I, I, you know, I, 
over the past few years, I've spent time with a lot of under pressure coaches, you know, who, and, and it's almost like, of course, in the cold light of day, we understand the need for long term processes and not, and not, you know, being so tightly focused on the results. But, but what happens in the heat of the moment? And, and I'm curious how you were able to balance that tension, not only for other people, but perhaps even more importantly for yourself. Um, how did you how did you manage yourself, your own emotional regulation, your own way that you held yourself when when the pressure came on? Yeah, look, most of the times okay, <laughs> no, a few times not not very well. Um, but um, uh, maybe I, to give you concrete examples of of both. Um, so you know, again, I, I viewed my role was to be emotionally stable, at least on the surface, at least what people could view. I'd be scrambling and, and, and just panicking or, you know, elated, depending on what was going on in the field inside. But I didn't believe that, that the players or anybody needed to see that. All they needed from me was, was some sort of consistency all the time, just same sort of stuff um, and, and delivering the same sort of messages. So... Um, in that 94-95 season, we uh, had got to a point where the last game, the last round was in front of every state. We'd just been beaten outright in South Australia. So um, we were somewhere near the top of the table with South Australia, who obviously just beaten us. And then um, there was a game in Melbourne between Western Australia and uh, Victoria, I think it was. Oh, well, obviously, in Melbourne. Um, and we, we knew that the West Australia Victoria game in Melbourne, they'd get six points because both were hell-bent on getting a win and giving themselves a chance of getting into the final. We had to beat Tasmania outright. If we if we could beat Tasmania outright, one, it meant we could get into the final, but two, probably mean we'd host it. And then South Australia, who were in uh, Sydney, uh, if they uh, got an outright then they would definitely be in the Shield final. Depending on what we did, they might host it. So at the end of day one on that, that final round, South Australia posted a big score day one against New South Wales. I can't remember. It might have been WA doing the same thing in Melbourne. And then we'd been bowled out in Tasmania for 220 or 230. And, uh, and uh, Tassie were none for 60, something like that. You know, So it had been a horrendous day for us. And the players just sort of trudged off the field, you know, their shoulders hunched, heads down, uh, just dragging themselves into the dressing room. And, and it was right at that stage that I said, I've I got to do something here uh, and I just can't walk into the dressing room and be that calm, um, composed person. I don't think that's what we need right at the moment. So I spent... Five minutes outside the dressing room, trying to get myself into the, the the most emotional possible state I could, and then I charged into the dressing room, slammed the door, told people to, to get out that shouldn't be in there, and just had the team. And then I just got stuck into the team. And it happened to be Alan Border that I I, I I just glanced at, and I started to target Alan Border. And uh, you know, I, I went well for you know maybe a minute or two, but it was just. An unfamiliar and non-preferred style for me, and you know, of course, I ran out of steam. You know, I didn't I got to a point where, what else do I say? How do I maintain the rage? You know, and uh, as soon as I stopped, Alan Border then just flew back at me. You know, how dare you talk? Because I was telling him, you know, I'd expected far more from you. You're a man of that amount of experience. You know, you're carrying us, going, carrying yourself like a child. You know, just emotionally inept. Whatever I could think of. And so he flew back at me and said, how dare you talk to us? You know, we've got every right to be disappointed. We're trying to hardest, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so he did that and then and then he stopped. So right at that point, I kind of glanced around the room and we had a whole lot of younger guys in the side, obviously, as well as a mix of old blokes. And the younger blokes' jaws were on the floor at this point in time. And so I quickly said, what do you blokes think? And, and, and they couldn't say a word. And right at that point, I said, great, you know, I really pretty well appreciate what you just said. And I think we can just leave it at that and then we'll 
head home and let's turn up tomorrow. And so what happened? I mean, history then records it. They came out the next day. They played exceptionally well for the next three days, won the, that game outright, and we hosted the Shield final and won the Shield final. Yeah. The Holy Grail. Um, but, you know, the, I, I guess the, the point there was that the whole season I've been trying to get them to understand that we play on process. Yes, we've got to get results. You know, every sport, that's what sport's about, it's winning and losing. Um, yes, we've got to get results. But the more that we deal in those results, it, it seems the harder it makes it for ourselves. And that, and that's what had happened that day. That, As I said, it was the ghosts of the past that were, were haunting them in that dressing room or haunting them as they came off the field because it was, here we go again, we've got so close, you know, and then not only do a shield final, but actually hosting the shield final. So it was those results that were going through the mind. So I needed to sort of get that out of them. I, I didn't know. I didn't know whether it was going to work or not. You know, in coaching, you you, you do a lot of things. You know, you, you're always experimenting and always um, trying to find ways and means of, of challenging individuals in the team. And, and sometimes you get it wrong. Hopefully, most of the times you get it right. Um, and, and on this occasion, it, it worked. I did. I'll come to another example where it doesn't work. Um, but but there was about the process. Forget about the history. Let's just deal with what's in front of us. Before you come to the the, the time it didn't work, did you know in the moment that it was working or it was going to work, or was it a kind of you went back to the hotel that night or back to the team camp and yeah. were going, oh geez, how's this going to land? Or did or did you kind of know? Did was there a look in the eye? Did did, did Alan Border respond in a way which you're going, yep, that's what I was looking for? Yeah, yeah. I myself and the the physio, we walked back to the hotel that night and I just said to him, I think we'll be okay. Mm. You know, I, I wasn't sure, I didn't know, but it, it was through that response. Um, just a feeling as he walked out the door that um, I think, yeah, we might have we might have got that right, and it's over to the guys now, and let's see what happens tomorrow. And and the the thing I'm hearing when you say that it was a deliberate choice to do that. It was a it was a choice that you made that okay, yeah. we're, I'm gonna I'm gonna dial up the emotion. I'm gonna dial up the heat for want of a better yeah, phrase. Yeah, yeah. You didn't just fly off the handle like I see some no, coaches. No, no, no. As yeah. I said, yeah. I don't operate that way, yeah. and, and you know normally I'd go in if I felt there was a need to say something in a very calm, measured, composed way. Mm. But I just didn't believe that was that was what was needed right at that moment. So I had to find something else. All right, let's flip the coin then, John. Yeah. When, <laughs> when when did uh, it not go well? Know, yeah, look, um, two thousand and five uh, when. Uh, all English people. The, the great, the greatest cricket test series in history. Is that what you're referring to? <laughs> uh, well, it was certainly a, a test series, but no doubt about that. But um, yeah, look there. I, I look back on it as one of my probably worst coaching efforts uh, when I was around the team. Um, you know, at different stages through that tour. I mean, there are a lot of things that had happened. Behind the scenes on that tour, um, be, before we we left, I mean Tim Nielsen, who was just a fantastic uh, assistant coach for me. I, we'd been in India in in uh, 2004, and obviously winning that series over there. And he'd expressed, you know, look, he wanted to be head coach, and I said, I'd like you to be head coach as well when I finish up. But I said, the only way that you're going to do that is leave the team. You've got to demonstrate that you've got a breadth of experiences apart from just being an assistant coach. I don't want to lose you. That's your your call. But uh, if you want to be head coach, I just believe you're at least. So, so Tim took up a role as heading up the Centre of Excellence back in Australia. Um, we also had a change of physio. We had a couple of injuries. We had players staying away from the hotel. We had a few different things, a lot of things going on. But having said all that, yeah, I lost, I lost connection with the team in that in that uh, series, and I, I, I suppose I had done so in a way purposely because Jamie Siddons, who came in to replace uh, Tim, was a very very experienced cricketer and a, and, a, and a very good coach in the making. So what I did was pull myself back from the players and allowed 
Jamie to sort of insert himself so he, he could establish that relationship a little bit quicker than maybe normally. So, so in doing so, I thought that was a good move, but in reflection, it, it took me away from the, the pulse of the team. And equally, a couple of my key connectors in out of Gilchrist and Matthew Hayden, they had their families over there. So um, they, they were actually staying away from the hotel. So there was key connections that were missing there. As I said, a couple of other support staff who were normally around weren't there and, and there were other distractions going on. So I did try that, that same method um, in Edgebaston, believe it or not. All right. Um, you know, we'd won the first test, obviously, uh, and, and so things looked good. Um, then, McGrath um, slips on, then McGrath slips on a ball. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that job stood on a ball. And, um, and England really got away to a flyer on that first day. And uh, obviously, as the game wore along, and I reckon this probably was around day three, maybe the end of day three, I, I was really disappointed in the way that we were responding to what England were throwing at us. The crowd was, in inverted commas, throwing at us. Mm. Um, and we'd got caught up in the emotion. Uh, so I thought, right, this is the time to, when they get back to the hotel, right, hidden between the eyes and see whether I can lift them out of this kind of malaise or this response. However, it was exactly the wrong thing to do because I, I wasn't in tune with where they were at. I wasn't really in tune with... Uh, how they were feeling, um, and uh, yeah, it, it it just it just didn't work, and and from from there on, it became harder and harder um, because England were playing very well. They won that test, obviously, and I think um, um, you know if if we had a somehow sneak by, I think obviously they would have been two 0 and the series would have been completely different, but. One all and, and England were just riding, riding high on emotion and the crowds were just everywhere. And, and I just got really caught up in the whole emotion. I got caught up in the, geez, we need to win these ashes. You know, we need to, we need the result. Yeah. And so, you know, I just. You, you were doing, you were doing what you kind of were yeah. berating the, the yeah. Queensland team for doing a few years previous, right? Yeah, you, exactly. you were focused yeah, well, so narrowly on that road. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. Look, um, results are always really important, and you can't get away from it. You know, like I'm, I'm coaching a, a first eleven uh, boys team in our local GPS competition right at the moment, and as this goes to air, uh, we're we're just sitting on second on the on the table with two rounds to go, and um, you know, there's a chance of winning the premiership, and of course. The boys are all dreaming about that. The parents are, you know, they got their spreadsheets out and working out, you know, bonus points and a whole range of things. And, that's uh, your fault. You brought stats into it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, it's very much the same thing and, and but harder with young boys because they, they just don't have the experience of, of playing a lot of cricket and realising, you know, that, there are a lot of things that, that can transpire through a game, through a season, over time. So right at the moment, they're emotionally um, tight, mm. you know, which is not the way to play cricket. So I'm just trying to work out for them how best for them to come out this coming weekend and, and just enjoy the game, yeah. whatever the result is. Yeah. That's not easy because... The, they can do it for maybe a couple of overs and then suddenly they get tense again, you know. So it's, it's a real emotional roller coaster with them. But, but the whole uh, coaching approach is just the same. Let's, let's just understand what our game plans are and our, our basics are and the process of how we go about that and then let's hope the result looks after itself. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's the approach. You uh, you made a reference before talking about you know the ghosts of, of the past and, and, and like previous times where oh here we go again we're we're under the pump you know it's and and whilst that seems self evident that that could be an issue I'm I'm curious um, about how you deal with the ghosts of the past when all the ghosts are really successful <laughs> you know and it's kind of like how how do you maintain that 
pursuit of excellence to to go to that next level you know you often spoke about wanting to change the game and 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 taking cricket to that next level how do you do that when it you know and this is going to sound quite blunt but how do you do that when everyone's kind of done everything already how how do you frame that with a team that is successful that they don't rest on their laurels or I'll I'll give you an explicit example you know where they don't try and defend the title they don't try and defend what they've got but they they go out to attack something new what's your what's your take on that mindset yeah well I think that's um part of the value of of data so um you know individually I would always try to show them that even though, you know, maybe they're in, in everybody's terms they're successful, I'd try to use hard facts and evidence to, to show that, look, you could do so much more. Uh, whether it's the batsman, you know, so I talk about just your ability to, to score runs per ball, um, you know, not get caught up in averages and run numbers and aggregates and number of not outs and strike rate, but you know, what what we need from you as a batsman is that you need to be able to score from more balls. And if you can score from more balls and you can combine that with actually staying at, at the crease longer, then you can actually achieve more. And if you do that and others do that, then the trend will be that we will do that. You know, so, so again, to give you a, a, probably a concrete example of that one. So after that 2005 loss, then I had to, to the board and tell them why I should still be coached. Fortunately, I was able to convince, well, first I had to convince myself. Uh, then I needed to talk to How long did that player. take? Sorry, before, how long did it take to convince yourself that you should remain the coach? Yeah, look, um, fortunately, I didn't have much time to do that. So in other words, when we came back from the Ashes, say August, we then had a series against the World Eleven in in Australia, which I think was beginning in October. So I only had a period of three or four weeks, and the board said, you, "You've got to come and tell us why you should still be coach." And so what I, what I had to do was I, I just asked myself um, three questions, um, and the first was, you know, could I still make a difference? Because again. To me, that's what, what the coaching was about. If, if I wasn't able to make a difference in somebody's life, or in this case, their cricketing life, then why should I be there? And, and, and not just a small, you know, this is, this is really to try, as you said before, try to change the game, to continue to work out how to try to change the game. So could I still make a difference? Then second question was, did I still really want to do it? You know, like I've been there six years and we, we've done a lot, as, as, as you pointed out. Um, did I just have the desire to get up every day and, and either plan out a day, plan out a week, plan out a, a tournament, um, go to training, you know, deal with all the issues around players and staff and um, being under the microscope of the media and spectators and stakeholders and administrators, you know, all that sort of stuff and be away from home so much. So that was the second question, did I still really have the passion and desire? And then the third was around going to the players and just saying, look, um, if I was to be appointed, would I still have your support, or at least your your respect? And uh, and if I had got a no to any of those questions, then I wouldn't have gone to the board. So I was able to ask those, answer those two myself and then I got the support of the players. So then I was able to paint a picture uh, to the board about what the next 20 months was going to look like and which time I would exit because I knew that uh, irrespective of, of how the results went, I knew that either one of those first two questions or both, I'd, I'd answer no, you know, that I, I just didn't think I could make a, a difference anymore or probably more importantly, I'd just be burnt out. I just couldn't, couldn't uh, face the, the, um, the, the rigours of, of head coach um, for another period of time. And then, of course, if, if one of those was no, the worst thing would be that I'd lose the respect to the players, which I didn't want to do so. Mm. Anyway, I was able to do that. And and then, I, as I said, I painted a picture and, and I, in my starting gambit with the Australian cricket team, the change of the game was about going on a journey to Everest. And so our final Everest was, or at least mine with the team at that point, was that we had three 
big tournaments coming up towards the end of it. One was going to the India for the ICC trophy, which we hadn't won. The English were coming back out to Australia, so there was an opportunity to regain the Ashes. And then we go to the World Cup in the West Indies and an opportunity to win three in a row. So that was kind of the Everest. And, and to do that, we're going to be the best skilled team the world had ever seen. And that was the picture that I was painting to the board, the players, but probably more importantly to myself um, because that just kept me on track then. It kept me understanding that everything we're doing here needs to lead towards that end goal. So one of those things then to your question um, about how do we, we keep that going was that I, I said to the players that we should be the first team to score 400 in a, in a one-day game. And so that became target 400. Uh, for us. And, and that was, again, just another one of those milestones along the way, one of those challenges along the way. And, and again, interestingly, it was about the, the process, um, you know, because, uh, you know, again, very brief story on it and, 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 and certainly uh, condensed was that as soon as you say that to a playing group where you can be the first at doing anything, pretty well everybody will jump on board. You know, they'll say, yeah, yeah, we want to be part of that. Okay, away we go. Then they'll come back and say, but hang on, coach, how do we do that? Because at the moment, you know, we're scoring 330, 340, maybe it was. Um, how do we, how can we ever get to 400? That's, you know, a bit like the four-minute mile. How do we do that? And uh, basically said, look, um, what we've got to do, here's the data, here's the evidence. We're only scoring off 50% of the deliveries on average to get those scores. Why don't we actually begin to explore the other 50%. You know, even if we get 10% of those deliveries, we're probably on track. Oh, okay, right, away we go. Uh, and then they come back and say, but hang on, we're using all our skills at the moment. How do we do that? I said, right, well, here's some more evidence. You know, look at our running between weeks. It's one of the basics of the game. It's poor, really poor, the way that most of us are running. And I brought in an expert, Dean Jones, to talk about running between weeks. how you go about improving that. You know, so, so there was a, a skill that we practised, you know, we... We did a whole range of things around that, and and gradually, you know that that led itself um, to players then beginning to look at their own game and developing ways and means of scoring either from their existing array of shots or introducing new shots. Ricky Ponting was one that introduced a, a great cover driver, but introduced an ability to hit over cover, um, you know, to increase either number of balls scored from or, or his scoring capacity off the balls that he is scoring. So anyway, long story short, yes, we got there. Obviously, the one of the great games of all times. We we beat the other team to uh, 400 by three hours maybe yeah. uh, against South Africa and Johannesburg. But, but again, it was a, a key around let's drive a process here and, and maybe we'll get a result at the other end. But indeed, that was a milestone as we trek towards this to finish off at that period of time. It's um, you know, the, the the challenges and the the the, the sheer public um, way in which you know these athletes and your endeavours are, are, are put out there. I think that's an added layer of uh, it adds a layer of complexity to to what we're trying to manage. And and what I'm wondering, just as we we round out, because I'm mindful of time here, um, is would you have enjoyed the coverage that the Australian cricket team gets today? So I'm talking particularly around, you know, the Amazon um, series, the test. And I'm talking also about just the, with the 24 news hour you know, psych, news cycle that we have now, social media, all that that intense. It seems every decision is, is analysed to the nth degree and, you know, everyone's got an opinion on what shots players should be playing, etc. I'm curious as to how would you, do you how do you think you'd have gone with that kind of constant surveillance or constant interrogation of what you were doing? Because just to be clear, I appreciate it was fairly constant. You know, you 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 would you weren't universally loved, for example, by the the, the cricketing aficionados, for want of a better word. You know, but I'm curious in today's climate how. How would you have fared, do you think, in that? And, and what advice or pointers might you give a, a younger coach coming into that environment now? Yes, look, um, I, I do believe I was fortunate as a coach and, and possibly the, the team and the players were 
fortunate that, you know, Facebook and the internet hadn't really taken hold, you know, when I finished. Certainly Facebook and, and social media. I mean, Warney was uh, probably our best exponent of, of uh, phones and, and, and so on. Um, but beyond, beyond that, um, you know, we, I think we were reasonably lucky. I, I do recall, though, the beginning of the intrusion well, what I termed the intrusion from from our host broadcaster, which was Channel 9 at the time, because they they were obviously doing a lot of in, uh, creative things with rugby league in terms of uh, being closer to the players, you know, near the field, in the dressing rooms and so on, and they really wanted to extend that into cricket to open up people's eyes to what happens behind the scenes. Um, I can understand what they were doing, but I guess I was in a... I was in opposition to that, whereas there were a number of players that were for that and, and other players who, who weren't. And to me, it was just a, kind of a, a wedge that would open up over time and I was probably more keen to try to protect the inner sanctums, if you like, um, and leave that as mysterious um, and allow then, you know, virtually, in invert, again, inverted commas, outside the dressing room to be public arena and where people could express themselves and do whatever they wanted to do. Um, That's probably, obviously, as it turned out, very old school thinking because, uh, you know, it just doesn't happen that way these days. So I, I think um, from a, a new coach's perspective, firstly, um, they probably have to very, very clearly understand what the ground rules are. They have to very clearly understand that the players are their own YouTube channels these days. And obviously organisations need to do the same. We've seen plenty of incidents of recent times where players have a different opinion to what the organisation has, which has led both player and organisation into, into conflict. So I think it's a, it's, a, it's a moving ground, but I think the organisation in the first place needs to be far clearer in terms of how it wants to manage and administer the sport and players associations which are increasingly involved in the decision making of those organisations need to be very much a part of those conversations and have very clear agreements about what players can and can't do and what organisations can and can't do so that hopefully some of the the grey areas, some of the complexities as much as can be seen, are, are cleared before it gets to the extent that we've seen in, in recent times in, in different sports, uh, which includes, you know, the coach and so on. And I think that sort of conversation is a really important conversation between the coach and the playing group, and the playing group plus the support staff and those that kind of interact with that, uh, about how they want to run that sort of um, public interface which can impact upon the way that the team operates because it'll impact upon team culture, it'll impact upon certain individuals more than others and for, for good or for bad. Um, and, and so I think, you know, that now is a, a new, uh, battleground's not quite the right word, but it's, it's a new frontier that, that coaches need to be very clear on how they go about addressing that so that it doesn't become a significant distraction from their ability to coach and develop a team culture, develop a performance culture, develop a, a real unity and harmony within the group. And, and so, yeah, that, that would be my advice, I guess, to, to really try to make sure that that's constantly clear. And then there's going to be instances all the time where, where that's broached. But if we have some agreement in the first place, at least we've got a, a reference point to come back to to say, well, we've had these kind of discussions. These were our agreements. Let's understand what's happened here. Um, and then we can make some decisions, not necessarily blanket decisions. Uh, again, from a coaching perspective, coaching is all about one-on-ones and individuals. I mean, if again, cricket's a, a, an individual sport dressed up in team clothing. You know, we've got to get the individuals right um, and then we bring that together and put that into a, into a team environment. So this is just, again, one other aspect of understanding the individual, how they're going about what they're doing 
how do we actually give them opportunity to perform best on the field with these other things going on around them? And of course, you know, you're now thrown into the mix, player agents, contracts, IPL leagues, you know, all around the world. So it's a very, very uh, difficult job, I think, for, for coaches at, at that level these days. There's so much of what you're saying there, John, which is, I think, obviously and you know, directly applicable to people who are coaches, leaders, managers, educators, parents, you know, like it really just putting the person at the centre of, of this over and above the performer, you know, over and above their job title, over and above what they do. And I'm interested, obviously, I know, I know that you spend a lot of time working now um, as a corporate coach and working with different organisations. And I'm just wondering if someone, you know, if, if, if people have been listening to this and, and they're interested in learning a little more about what you offer um, outside of coaching cricket, um, you know, and, and how you've spent the last, um, you know, 15 years or so, um, what what's the best way to get in contact and see um, about your offerings and your uh, and your coaching services. Yes, thanks, Dan. Look, just before I say that, I, I think again you, your point is quite accurate. As I work in the corporate area, I really see that is one of the key areas that when you talk to leaders and executive uh, managers of teams and so on, is that they will say they're time poor. And, and they are, they're just very, very busy people. However, what they're, they're not prioritising, in my opinion, this is generalisation, they're not prioritising time with their staff. You know, the, 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 the beauty of coaching, or really good coaching, is that that's what you're doing. You're spending time with your players and your support staff. That might be in a group setting, it might be in a small group setting, or certainly in one-on-one settings, you know, and, and you're spending time and you, you're knowing person and they're knowing you and I think that's where leaders are making a big mistake these days is that they're allowing themselves a bit like me with England when I mentioned I distanced myself too far from the group and I lost the pulse of the team I think that's where many managers many leaders of organizations uh, are, are losing their way these days they're they're not in they're not seeing the time in people as an investment they're seeing it as a cost to their ability to run the business I think that's a real mistake. So if people want to find out more about that, yes, they can find me on buchanancoaching.com on, on the web uh, or just visit my uh, LinkedIn site. They're probably the best places to find me. Okay. I'll put those links in, in the show notes so people can just click away um, you know, e- easier rather than the old search engines. Um, just before you go, obviously you've written a book and you coach and you, you know, you're, you, you, for want of a better word, inspire, motivate, educate um, others. One thing I'm doing this year is asking our guests who inspired or, or has educated you um, in terms of perhaps a book that you've read, which really, I appreciate you've probably read thousands of books, but I'm wondering if there's one or two that stand kind of like head and shoulders of kind of being a real North Star guiding light or or just a, a coach that you had that you know was showed you the way, so to speak. Uh, yeah, look, um, <laughs> that's a... That's a tough one. Um, look, I mentioned about a reflective process. When I wanted to be a coach, I had to reflect on why I did what I did. And I think for anybody that wants to pursue coaching or leadership, then you need to go back to your childhood. You need to go back to your parents. You need to go back to teachers. You need to go back to peers, uh, your experiences and so on, because that, that's where everything is, is really shaped. Um, and I, I know I have no scientific evidence to back this up, but I think really by the time that you leave school, you, you, your values, your principles, your cornerstones, the things that make you tick are pretty well shaped. What we do after that is that, that we fine-tune some of our knowledge base, some of our experiential base, which may impact a little bit upon you know your core being. But... That to me is always the starting place, um, and as you said, yeah. Look, I I did a whole range of different things, and uh, my book, if better as possible, is actually based on I thought one of the best management books that I, I read. I did a master's in in the University of Alberta uh, when I thought I was going to become a professor at a university, and uh, uh, that was called Management in Small Doses uh, by an Israeli author. 
Russell Akoff, A-C-H-O-F-F. And uh, as I recall, there were about 52 chapters in there and he just painted a bit of a picture, a bit of a story. Here are some of the messages, here's, here's your takeaways. And that that kind of book always impressed me, not, not just because it was kind of leadership, but just how you could go in and find something without having to try to trawl through it, you know, so many pages. That's a title that I like. That's something I'm interested in. That's what I'll grab. And I guess that's what uh, the internet or Google or whatever chat GPT these days can do for you that, you know, I think if there is something that you're trying to understand as a coach, yes, you can go on a podcasts, um, yes, you can go to websites and so on, but I think try to do your own research because in the end I'm saying I'm eclectic, I guess. I, there's a whole range of different things that have gone into that fine-tuning for me, but ultimately you've got to find out what your core being is and the only way you can do that is is go to your quiet place, wherever that might be. And when I was doing the Queensland interview, you know, I'd, I'd go out and run because I used to run. And uh, I'd, I'd just think through all these, all those experiences and, and kind of work out, ah, oh, yeah, that, that's why I did that or that's why I'm thinking that or that's how the reason why I responded that way. And, and so putting all that together in your own coaching philosophy, I think, is really the nub of good, co- good coaching simply because you understand yourself. Good Warts and all, you know, warts and all, but um, you understand yourself and, and eventually that's so important because, again, it's about relationships and, and it's about you being consistent in yourself and your messaging um, so that whomever you're trying to influence or uh, is being influenced by you really understand your messages all the time. John, that's a beautiful way to finish. Thank you very much. Um, I'm really appreciative of the time um, that you've given up for us this morning. Um, as I said, I'm going to put all the links to your website and your book and the book that you've just mentioned there as well, Management in Small Doses. All that will be in the um, in the show notes along with your LinkedIn profile. So um, anyone who's found the conversation uh, worthwhile and interesting, all the links are there for you to to dig into so yeah once more thank you so much and good luck with your uh, your cricket team um i'll i'll be scouring the the internet to see it to, to track your progress this year <laughs> <laughs> no much much appreciated dan really enjoyed the enjoyed the chat so as i said all the links are in the show notes and if you found this conversation worthwhile then please share it as far and as wide as you can while you're doing that why not leave us a rating and maybe even leave us a comment wherever you listen to your podcasts because doing this it's just a small action but it has a real big impact on the way the algorithms then share our podcast to other potential listeners if you are interested in learning more about the work we do, or perhaps you'd like to submit a question for an upcoming Q&A episode, or perhaps you'd like to suggest a guest, or perhaps even nominate yourself as a guest for an upcoming episode, then you can do that by heading over to habitsofleadership.com and clicking on the podcast page there. But until our next episode, thank you so much for tuning in. Take care, take it easy.